And what, what we're doing in this show um, on the journey with Matt and Ken, which we, we thought about renaming to um, Over the Hill with Matt and Ken or Circling the Drain with Matt and Ken, but we decided on, on the journey. Or once more with story. feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another tasteful and refined episode yeah. of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. If you don't know much about us, we're a network of people who all entered the Catholic Church from various backgrounds. Uh, if that's who you are too, or if that's someone you're considering being, then come visit us at chnetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. Ken, how are you? I am doing well. Thank you, Matt. Good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you. Took a little time off. I moved. Um, I got different background um i got johnny and the lord behind me so um you told me that you're didn't you tell me you're sitting in a closet right now i am i am i feel like i do most (laughs) of my best broadcasting work from random closets um but today we're getting into an issue that was really one of the flashpoints of the entire reformation it's Mm -hmm. this we did a lot on sola scriptura that was one of the obvious ones but sola fide faith Mm -hmm. alone salvation by faith alone or as Luther would say, justification, because, you know, on the reform side, they use the word justified more than they use the word saved. Mm-hmm. So how are we going to start by diving into all this? Well, I, I suppose I would just want to remind our viewers, our hearers, that that what we are about at the Coming Home Network is stories. And and what, what we're doing in this show um, on the journey with Matt and Ken, which we, we thought about renaming to... Um, over the hill with Matt and Ken, or circling the drain with Matt and Ken, but we decided on on the journey. Or once more with stories. feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're telling our stories, and you know, I, um, as a former Baptist pastor, I'm wanting to communicate to my Protestant brothers and sisters, and maybe in a special way to 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 ordained clergy because that's where I come from. The the process of reasoning that led me um, to leave my ministry to become Catholic. Now. We just spent like about 14 weeks talking about Sola Scriptura, and so I just thought it would be good just to dive into the other critical issue, because really, the two key issues of the Protestant Reformation were these two issues, the issue of authority, that is what constitutes binding authority in the life of the church and of the individual Christian, and the issue of justification, how are sinful human beings made right in the sight of God? Now, the Reformers' answer to the question of authority, of course, was the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith and practice for the Church. And the answer that the Reformers gave to the second question, um, the question of, of justification, how we're made right, is the doctrine of sola fide, or justification by faith alone. And again, we just spent about 14 weeks on the first one. Um, uh, sola scriptura, which was considered and is still referred to often as the formal principle of the Reformation. And so what I want to do now is launch into um, a number of weeks, I think, discussing the second issue, the material principle of the Reformation, that is the doctrine of justification. Now, at least for me, Matt, I can say at least for me, to a large extent, my own conversion to Catholicism 
was rooted in my coming to believe that these two foundational issues, sola scriptura and sola fide, um, simply do not fit with the teaching of scripture. And Ken, this was a, an issue that was more at stake in your tradition than it was in mine, um, because you also you know, had several other things mm-hmm. that you know, end up being tossed into this package, the once saved, always saved uh, sort of material that is often characteristic of people who come from sort of that branch. Uh, yeah. Whereas I came from more of like a Wesleyan tradition, mm-hmm. you know, through the English Reformation, a few generations removed from that. And so for us, um, we would have talked more about salvation and uh, and not even really use the word justification unless we were arguing with the Calvinist. So, Yeah, and I understand that. And I'm glad you clarified that because I am coming definitely from a Reformed tradition. Theologically speaking, pretty much a Reformed Baptist or Calvinistic Baptist. And I understand that the way that I'm going to be describing uh, justification and the answers that I'm going to be giving to it as I as I communicate over the coming weeks um, fit um, most precisely a Reformed view. And um, although I would say, though, that the vast majority of non-denominational Christians in the United States and evangelicals are basically Reformed in their view of justification. Yeah. And it's possible to even be Anglican and Reformed. Just ask yeah. ask yeah. J.I. Packer. <laughs> so. yeah. Okay, so where do we start then? We have to start by asking the question, what is the doctrine of justification by faith alone? And um, to answer this question, I need to tell a story. And the story that I need to tell, uh, many may guess ahead of time, is a story about an Augustinian monk in his cell in Germany in the early 15th century, or in the, the early 16th century, excuse me. Dr. Martin Luther, of course he wasn't doctor at the time, Martin Luther had entered the Augustinian monastery in Germany, and then he had become a Catholic priest, and yet Luther could not find peace with God. This is where the story begins. By Luther's own admission, this is not, I'm not trying to psychologize or anything like that. By Luther's own admission, he was a soul literally tormented spiritually and psychologically by a conception that he had of God, by images of a God that he could not please, that he could never please, no matter how hard he tried. Um, It's said that in the monastery, Luther would fast for days in or days on end without a crumb of food that he would throw off the blankets from his bed in the dead of German winter as a discipline and nearly freeze himself to death. Um, Later in life, in fact, Luther described this time in these words, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear this out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils prayers, reading, and other work. So the Augustinian order that he was a part of was the strictest Augustinian order in Germany at the time. And apparently Luther was one of the strictest in terms of his um, his works. And again, these were ones do. that were self-imposed, right? Yeah, far beyond what was being required of him. Essentially, Luther believed that he had to work hard to make himself worthy of God, to make himself worthy of salvation. But the more that Luther worked, the more his conscience tormented him. Questions like, have you prayed enough, Martin? Um, But have you fasted enough? Have you kept enough vigils? Have you stayed up day and night? Have you thrown off the blanket enough times? Is God pleased with you? No matter what Luther did, for Luther, God was always an angry, impossible-to-please father. And we call that scrupulosity, right? 
Yeah, we, we would refer to that as scrupulosity. And there were people who said that to, to him at the time, too. Now, the Protestant interpretation of this, though, that is Luther's situation, traditionally has gone something like this. It's the Roman Catholic Church, Matt, that made Luther the tormented soul that you describe here. After all, doesn't Catholic theology teach us to think of God as an angry father that can, cannot be pleased? Doesn't the Catholic Church, Church teach us, essentially, that what our lives are about, or that our lives should be lives of stress and working hard to make ourselves worthy and to save ourselves? If Luther struggled, this is how it is portrayed, if Luther struggled, surely it's only because he was a sensitive and honest enough soul to see that he was not pure and that he would never be pure enough to earn salvation. In other words, if Luther lived in dread of the judgment of God, it's simply because he took the teaching of the Catholic Church seriously. And again, that puts it back in the court of, let's fix this problem, not by saying, Luther, you need to go to spiritual direction, but rather by saying, Luther, you need to change Christianity forever. Yeah, yeah, but because it's, yeah, it's, blame it on the church, I guess. But what I want to say at this point is that it simply, it simply is not that simple, because St. Thomas Aquinas loved God, St. Dominic loved God, um, St. Bernard of Clairvaux loved God. In fact, I don't think I've shared this with you, but when I was confirmed, um, I chose St. Bernard as my confirmation name. And the reason I did is that as a Protestant, for years and years, I had loved so much the songs um, whose lyrics had been attributed to St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And th there were a number. One of them I really liked, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. You heard that one before? Oh, yes, of course. Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. Okay, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts. Okay, it's not, boy, I hate God. I can never please God. J Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts, Thou Fount of Life, Thou Light of Men. From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. And and I would encourage any of my Protestant brothers, sisters, listening to this, to read St. Bernard's treatise on the love of God. Because really, you read that, and it doesn't seem as though this guy could write about anything except God's love for him. And he, this is the same guy who wrote dozens of sermons just on the Song of Solomon. Which is yeah, just something this like whole, 50 or 60 or yeah, 70 sermons. Yeah, tons of them. And which is basically just this extended love poem that takes up a whole book of the Bible and is essentially talking about um, God as a lover. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah, he read that as a as typology that was fulfilled in Christ's love for the church. And he preached... Uh, yeah, I, I've got a book on my shelf with about 50 or 60 of his sermons on the Song of Songs. So, yeah, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux loved God and had no problem believing that God loved him. St. Francis loved God. St. Clair loved God. And the same with millions and millions of Catholics living before the time of Luther, during the time of Luther, and after the time of Luther. So apparently not everyone viewed God as Luther did. In fact, I would add Luther's own confessor, Johann von Staupitz, this was the vicar general of the Augustinian order at the time. He was a good friend of, of Luther and um, Luther's confessor. He appears to have done everything he could to convince Martin of God's love for him at the time. Um, and in fact, on one occasion, it's, it's widely reported and it's included in almost every biography of Luther. Um, it's reported that he became so weary with Luther, confessing the same instances of sin again and again and again, never being willing to believe that God loved him that he, he is said to have blurted out to Martin in frustration, man, God is not angry with you. It is you who are angry with God. And 
Luther was angry with God. In fact, Luther, uh, later in life, Luther himself wrote, and I quote, I was more than once driven to the abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God, I hated him. That's the background. And, that's, and, and, and that also gives you a Luther. picture of, you know, what else happened in his formation that caused him to, I mean, this is not, Luther's not coming to these conclusions and he's not uh, arriving at these theological points out of a vacuum. You know, what drove him to want to pick the strict disorder? What drove him to pile penances upon penances on top of himself of his own volition? What led him to get to where his confessor says, give it up, man. <laughs> you don't understand who, that God loves you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, in a series of, of articles and talks I've done in the past on Luther, I go a bit more into that. Um, his upbringing, his family life, his relationship with his father and whatnot. But I, in this, in this one, I mean, for these lessons, I really wanted to avoid even touching on the psychologizing kind of idea, and to just take Luther's words at face value and 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 proceed from that. But I totally agree with you. There's a lot more going on in in Luther's own life. Um, Luther had a particular problem that was his, and it, it's it, it's just too facile to turn around and say. Oh, well, Luther just felt this way because the Catholic Church drove him to it, because this is what the Catholic Church actually teaches, that we need to earn our salvation. Okay, so the next question, how did Luther find peace with God? And here the story continues. Over time, Luther was awarded a doctorate in Scripture and Sacred Theology, and he was appointed to be professor of Scripture at the University of Wittenberg in Wittenberg, uh, Germany, East Germany a while back. Well, I don't know what it's called now, but it's in Germany. In 1513, he lectured through the Book of Psalms, and in 1515, he lectured through St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And it was during this time that um, it came to him, okay? Now, as the story goes, he was meditating on Paul's statement in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says that in the gospel, and I'm quoting now, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay? The righteousness of God is revealed, Paul says, in the gospel, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Luther had always taken this phrase, the righteousness of God in Scripture, to refer specifically to the strict justice by which God would impartially judge the world and punish sinners. Okay? And since he knew himself to be a sinner, he hated those words, the righteousness of God. He hated them because he believed that what this was teaching was simply that God was going to come and damn him. But as, as Luther mulled over this phrase, these words of Paul again and again, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And, and then especially those words, the just shall live by faith. Suddenly, the answer came to him. Um, it was like a, a bright flash of lightning from heaven, a, a new way of looking at this whole thing. It, it came to Luther. Suddenly the answer came to him, and this is what it was. He realized in that moment the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel that what Paul is saying is this is the righteousness that God gives to those who only believe, the just shall live by faith, that God will just simply give to those who trust, who believe. In other words, the moment we look to Christ in faith alone, faith alone, Christ's own perfect righteousness, this righteousness that is revealed in the gospel, will be credited to our account. 
God the Father will impute, legally impute, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ to the account of Matt Swaim. And from that moment, God will consider Matt Swaim as being as righteous as Jesus himself for Jesus' sake, for what he's done. So this is where it does tend to break down along kind of more Calvinist versus Wesleyan Arminian lines is because, and, you know, with some of my Calvinist friends, I used to give them a hard time about this, that, you know, it's not the Catholic Church who goes around talking about salvation in terms of legal, uh, you know, politics and, you know, mathematical equations and, and, and mm-hmm. courtroom vocabulary. It's the Lutherans and the Calvinists who talk like this all the time. It's things are credited to your account or you are, um, and it is though you're appearing in the court of God and Christ is standing in front of you and saying, don't look at this guy, just look at me. You know, there's, there's all kinds of legal language that Luther comes yes. up. It really kind of gives you an idea of how clinical he was trying to approach this whole sin question was, sin question um, that was driving him to scrupulosity. It seems very clear that, that Martin Luther in his own mind developed this to a certain extent and that it was refined by his, um, his compatriot, um, Philip Melanchthon. Yeah. And, and also by John Calvin. But then this has become a reformed orthodoxy, is this legal imputation of Christ's righteousness. And this is where we get that illustration, you know, Christ's righteousness will cover us like snow covering some foul, you know, reeking dunghill, okay? That even though we continue to reek and we continue to be foul in every way, Christ's righteousness like snowflakes just comes down from God and covers us so that God doesn't see our foulness. God sees the righteousness of Christ. And in God's eyes, we stand as righteous as Jesus himself. Now, it's no wonder that with this discovery, you know, duh, I mean, you know, peace flooded into Luther's soul. No need to fear. I mean, no need for him to struggle. No need for him to worry about praying and fasting and and performing dramatic acts of contrition or vigils or anything. No need to to worry about making oneself pleasing to God. This is where he's coming from, how he viewed it. In fact, no need to even think of justification as something to be achieved, something in which our cooperation might be required. Rather, it's only believe, and it's done. I mean, in a moment of time, justification is done. It happens, it's over, and you are justified. So, you know, how in the world could your continued, you know, faith or obedience or anything like that have anything to do with it? This is, this is how Luther described it. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the phrase, the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So let me just emphasize then and kind of summarize this a, a bit. This is in, eff, in in essence the central doctrinal issue of the reformers. The idea, Matt, that the righteousness that you and I must possess in order to enter heaven, it is not a righteousness that God actually works into us, works in us as he regenerates us, gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit, begins to change us from within. And as we cooperate with his grace and walk in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham and are remolded over time into the image of Christ, which is essentially the Catholic view, although we'll get back to that much later, 
The righteousness by which we stand before God is not at all this kind of righteousness, according to the doctrine, the Reformed doctrine. Rather, it is an alien righteousness. That's a term that Luther used. It's a righteousness that comes to us from without, extra nos, the Latin phrase, and that is credited to our account the moment we first believe. It's Christ's own righteousness. And Luther said it like this, Christ has suffered for our sins and fulfilled the law for us. We have only to believe in him, and by believing in him, take hold, as it were, of his merits and put them on like a cloak. You know, put them on legally, put them on in terms of imputation, like a cloak. If we do that, although imperfect and unholy, we shall be saved and considered just, not for anything that God made us, not for regeneration or transformation or sanctification. In other words, not for anything that God will actually do in us to make us righteous, but only for the righteousness of Christ, that is the righteousness credited to us. Which makes you wonder what then he does with verses, like when that same St. Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. This language of you're basically just putting mm -hmm. on a, a Jesus costume and sneaking into heaven, right? Is is it doesn't speak at all. Like that to me doesn't sound like salvation. It's a good thing that you raise that because I can give their simple answer. The simple answer will be, oh yes, everyone that God justifies, he also begins a process of sanctification. And and therefore, yes, he creates us as new creations and we begin to be molded into the image of Christ. But they would say this, but this has nothing, nothing to do with your justification, Matt. Your justification occurs by the legal transfer of Jesus' righteousness to your account. All of that is second. And to take any of your own initiative or argue for your own free will in that is to uh, diminish the sovereignty of God. Um, yeah, is, yeah. The, is, the, is the argument that I always got back. Okay, and we'll come to that in more depth too. Okay, but now let's talk just for, for a moment about the importance of this doctrine because so, some people listening might be saying, well, you know, what's the big deal? These fine distinctions, hairline, you know, whatever. Glazing over at the legal speak. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Luther's commitment to this doctrine, though, justification, was total. It was absolute. It was the article Luther famously said, quote, upon which the church stands or falls. Luther began to interpret all of Scripture in the light of this view of justification that he had come to. In fact, Luther was willing to question the inspired authority of anyone, even an apostle, it turns out, who didn't seem to agree with him on this. For instance, the epistle of James, very famously or in, infamously, if you like, because James says in chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by deeds and not by faith alone. The only place the words faith alone actually show up in the Bible. Yes, yeah, it, the only passage where it shows up is where James is saying, you see that a man is justified by deeds and not by faith alone. Anyway, to this, Luther responded, and I quote Luther now, away with James. Its authority is not great enough to cause me to abandon the doctrine of faith. If they, that is referring to other teachers, will not agree to my interpretations, then I shall make rubble of it. I almost feel like throwing Jimmy into the stove. It is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works or deeds. Therefore, I do not want him in my Bible. Now, it needs to be said, to be honest, that he reversed this decision later, and uh, James was in his uh, translation of the New Testament. But 
this is powerful language, you know. I don't want him in my Bible. Unless you're willing to agree with my interpretation of this stuff, you know, forget about it. Throw him in the stove. Get him out. Luther went so far as to assert that no one could be saved who did not agree with him on this crucial issue. Quoting again from Luther, I do not admit that my doctrine can be judged by anyone, even the angels. He who does not receive my doctrine cannot be saved. That's a a little bit harsher even than there's no salvation outside the church, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the, there's yeah, no salvation right. outside those who don't agree with my opinion, which is a completely novel thing in the history of Christianity. You know, I, I, I've never thought of that before. But even the most, even the most radical interpretation of of um of no salvation outside the church doesn't come close to. It no still lets people outside. through through no fault of their own don't know about the church. You know, gives them a little bit of a pass as long as they're decent people. You know, this is not. This is not yeah. that. This is but not this religious is no salvation toleration. outside my private interpretation of a doctrine and an interpretation that has never been made until me. And you angels, watch out because when I get up there, I'm going to weed out the bad ones. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> my okay. doctrine can be judged by no one, not even the angels. That's crazy. Well, it might surprise some of those who are watching this video or listening to this podcast. It might surprise you to learn that this is still how the most serious Reformed Protestants feel about this issue. And I'll give an example. Dr. John Gerstner, he was professor for many years at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, very very well-known Reformed Reformed theologian. In a little book that I have on my shelf titled Justification by Faith Alone, Dr. Gerstner has a chapter in this book in which he talks about how he mourned for for his former seminary student, Scott Hahn, when he learned of Scott's conversion to the Catholic faith. He goes on and talks about this, and he says that he mourned for Scott when he heard this because he believed that no one could be saved who had once understood and embraced the doctrine of sola fide and then rejected it. Um, here's, here he is in his own words. Instead of leaving the Protestant church, Kirstner writes, Scott was leaving the lost world into which he was born and from which he never actually separated for the false church of Rome. He has leapt from the frying pan into the fire, and only God can deliver him as a brand from the burning. In other words, Dr. Gerstner interpreted Scott's conversion to Catholicism as evidence that he had never been a Christian at all, (laughs) that Scott had never actually left this lost world during the time that he was a... um, you know, a rabid evangelical, a teacher of the faith, going off to seminary. You knew to, Scott to during his hardcore Calvinist days, and I'm pretty sure that from everything you've told me, he seemed like he believed it. So I'm not sure there's anybody who knew Scott who wouldn't have thought he was a Christian, but, but Dr. Gerstner is concluding and feeling forced to conclude that Scott was never a, a Christian at all, because he can't conceive of a Christian embracing the doctrine of justification by faith alone and then come, coming to reject it. And so here's the question that I think the Catholics listening to this might be answering themselves, I mean, might be asking, why such commitment to one particular understanding of the doctrine of justification? Why is Luther ready to throw Jimmy into the stove over this issue? Why Why does Professor Gerstner feel driven to mourn Scott Hahn's conversion? Are Catholics not even Christians in his eyes? I mean, is it his, you know, my way or the highway when it comes to the doctrine of justification? And the bottom line answer is yes, it is his way or the highway. And here's the reason why. And this is where I, 
we got to get into the, the heart of how the thinking process goes. Here's the reason why. In Dr. Gerstner's view, and in the view of a vast number of Reformed Protestants and evangelicals, most evangelicals, in fact, the very gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake in this dispute between the Protestant, the Reformation, and Catholic views of justification. Because as they understand the teaching of the New Testament, and especially the teaching of St. Paul, there are really only two options, Matt. Either, this is how they're thinking, either we are justified by faith alone in the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to our account, or in some manner, the only other option, we're attempting to earn our own salvation in one way or another, through our obedience, through our faith, through our commitment, through our love, whatever. And here's an extension of this reasoning. If Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to us, then salvation, I mean, from beginning to end, is entirely the work of God. Then God receives all the glory, quote-unquote. And you and I have nothing in which to boast. Not a scrap, not even one little bit of obedience, not like one second of love. We have nothing in which to boast. On the other hand, if you and I view our salvation in the way that Catholics do, that is, if the righteousness by which you and I stand before God is a righteousness that God is actually working into us, and if our cooperation with God in the process has any, has any part, I would have to say, in the process, if our cooperation, our obedience has any part whatsoever in the process, I've, I've heard preachers say before, if even one hundredth of one percent of this is based on our obedience or cooperation with God, then salvation becomes partly God's work, partly our work. Then we have, to some degree, earned our own salvation. Matt, uh, yeah, you're shaking your head, but I know it. To I know some this, degree, you, this is this is the kind of debates that you know, as a Wesleyan Arminian, I got I, go to two in the morning with my Calvinist friends on this stuff. Yeah, and the logic seems inescapable if you buy into the parad paradigm. You know, to, to some degree, Matt, you are earning your salvation. To some degree, God gets most of the glory, but Matt gets a little bit of the glory, and that means for all eternity. Just a little bit, at least, Matt's going to be able to boast in heaven forever that while God did mainly, did most of the work, Matt finished it off. But again, it, you know, another book that Martin Luther was pretty down on was the book of Hebrews. And what is Hebrews 11 except just story after story of Abraham and it, it, all who came after uh, who were obedient? And that yeah. was a channel through which God, you know, showed forth his glory. Um, this is, again, this yeah. is such a foreign thing. I'd never encountered Calvinism until I got to college. And I was like, what is this? And, and it kept on coming back to this whole idea of the sovereignty of God. If you participate at all, then you have taken the credit. There's like this fixed amount of glory and God gets it all. And if you are, are part of it, you've taken it a, a bit away. And when you mentioned Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to come back to this a bit next week and the week after that. But yeah, again and again in Hebrews 11, it's by faith so-and-so did. Did something. By faith they did. By faith Abraham went. By faith M Moses did. And, and they're all set forth as examples for us. But anyway, we'll come back to that. But, it, but what I'm describing here, this is how Protestants think about this issue. Um, this is what they see Paul saying, in fact, when he writes in Romans 3.28, where we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. They take that to mean apart from doing anything, apart from having any 
part in cooperating with God's grace or doing anything. This is what they think Paul is saying when he writes in Ephesians 2, verse 8, By grace you have been saved through faith, not, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man boast. And since we Catholics do believe that by God's grace, by God's grace, we must walk in the steps of faith, cooperate with his grace, etc., serious Protestants see us as teaching what Pastor John MacArthur has referred to as a, quote, damning system of works righteousness, from which I've taken the uh, the title of um, this series. Just to, uh, of course, it, it, it gets into such a selective reading of Scripture just by the very nature of the fact that when you quote, quoted Ephesians 2, you did Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but you did not read verse 10, which says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Yeah, I didn't want to muddy the waters right now. I know. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. But it's, yeah. It's, it's all over the pages of Scripture. Um, but, yeah, it, it's context, yes. And we'll come back to that passage, but but you're right. I'm, I'm just saying that when they hear those words, you know, that it's a gift of God, it's grace, it's not of works, lest any man should boast, this whole description that I give is what comes into mind. The idea that from first to last, salvation must be the work of God, and the way the, the way that it is the work of God is to have him legally credit justification to us, rather than it being some kind of a process in which we're involved, okay? Now, we Catholics, we, we scratch our heads, and you more than scratching your head, I can see, because you've been wagging your head back and forth through, throughout you. this entire I mean, Why do you think I'm bald? I've been pulling my hair out over this Calvinism stuff, but Lutheranism. We, but we Catholics scratch our heads at this. After all... We know that our salvation is, is the free gift of God. I mean, we believe that. One of the prayers that Catholics sometimes read before Mass is this famous prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas, which includes the following. Almighty and ever-living God, I approach the sacrament of your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I come sick to the doctor of life, unclean to the fountain of mercy, blind to the radiance of eternal light, poor and needy to the Lord of heaven, and earth. And, you know, I could go on forever quoting, but we know that our salvation is grace from first to last. But that doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter because you believe, Matt, that you must use your freedom to, in any way, cooperate with God's grace, and that faith and obedience, the obedience that flows from faith, the very obedience being described throughout Hebrews chapter 11. You believe that faith and this obedience are required in order for you to finally inherit eternal life. In the view of Reformation-minded Protestants, you are teaching a salvation by works. You, are, you have embraced a damning system of works righteousness. And this gets into another principle of the Reformation, sola gratia, right? Yeah, grace alone, um, you know, saved by faith alone. Um, you know, through grace alone. And it also highlights, I think, you know, one of those lost in translation kind of things, because mm -hmm. one of the things that I noticed as I was becoming Catholic is Catholics use the word grace very differently than a lot of other yes, Christians yes. do, because grace is just the favor of God. You know, it's it's God essentially showing you himself and drawing you to himself. And it's it's unmerited favor. Whereas mm -hmm. You know, growing up, even though I was not off the Lutheran branch of the Reformation, I was mm -hmm. off of the English branch with, you know, my Methodism and holiness stuff. 
grace was the thing that got you saved, right? That's mm-hmm. that's that that was the function of grace. Grace is like the reason that you're going to heaven instead of hell. It's the it's the ticket. Grace is the ticket. Whereas in Catholicism, grace is it's like coming out of every pore. Um, the world is sort of shot through with grace at every turn. It's a it's a very different way. Uh, of talking about that concept. I'm glad you picked this up too, although this is something that we'll come to in, in depth later on, but 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 understood correctly, Catholicism teaches all of grace, sola gratia, that um, you know that that salvation is all of God's grace. Because even if our obedience is involved, remember what Saint Augustine said, when God crowns our obedience, he will only be crowning the works of his own grace in right. us, you know? Good point. Okay. So th- the final question as we wrap this up is um, how does a Protestant come to abandon the doctrine of justification by faith alone in order to embrace a damning system of works righteousness? You know, it's kind of a... You became kind of, the thing you preached against. It doesn't seem like a good deal. This is the question, though, that we're going to look at over the coming weeks um, as I attempt to tell the story of how this occurred for me. And I'm not going to go into it now, except to say one thing. Even though justification by faith alone is the doctrine that I was taught as a new believer in Christ. Um, this is the doctrine that I was taught at Bible college, where I got my degree in Bible and theology. This is the theology that I was taught in seminary, where I got my master's degree in theology. I began to have doubts about the doctrine even during my time in seminary. And it wasn't because I was paying close attention to things that Catholic apologists were saying. And in fact, the truth is I had never read a book by a Catholic apologist in my entire life at that point. It was because I was paying close attention to the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is where I want to begin telling the story. In Hebrews chapter 11, which wraps it all up together. The Old and New Testament, I was paying attention to it and I was coming even back in seminary to see that this Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone in the imputed, legally imputed righteousness of Christ, just didn't fit with what I saw in the Bible. And this is where I want to um, pick up next week and begin to tell that story. So more of the saga of Martin Luther and the parallel journey of Ken Hensley. Um, yeah, this is this is such an important topic. And again, it's not just a topic that divides Catholics and Lutherans. It's a topic that often divides Lutherans from other forms of Christianity or Calvinists or Reformed mm-hmm. theolo- theological people. Um, of which there is a major resurgence among younger neo-Calvinists out there right now. And I think a lot of our viewers and listeners have, if they are not in that group, they've certainly encountered that group uh, online in forums and discussions. So uh, very much looking forward to how this series plays out. Um, If you enjoy what you're hearing, please subscribe, share it with your friends. We would love to hear from you. Come visit us at the Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org. Uh, If you're at any stage of the journey or any stage of interest in the Catholic faith, we would love to hear from you. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken? I am Ken, and uh, Matt and Ken, and here we are, and goodbye, Matt. Good to see you. All right. Talk to you next time around. Bye.